Let's get together, talk about the movies that we saw this week. We'll have discussions, talk film news, we'll laugh a lot and act like geeks. Sometimes we'll have a guest or two, sometimes it's just the two of us. Let's crack some jokes and tell some folks to come along and hang with us! Mike and Mike go to the movies. Mike and Mike go to the movies. Yeah! You have chosen wisely. Dun 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 dun. <laughs> Just take my and go to the movies off the shelf. <laughs> I sit and listen to it by myself. And that's it. My name is Mike Smith. <laughs> Joining me, as always, is a man who asked that uh, when I bring him out, can I introduce him as a man who still doesn't know how the seashells in the bathroom work? <laughs> Mike Lucretia. How you doing today, Mike? I didn't know it was legal for you to do two bits in the intro now. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, I'm great. Yeah, the the intro is whatever we want it to be. <laughs> There's no rules. It's a quarantine. It's completely it's complete anarchy in the quarantine world of the Mike might go to the movies intro. <laughs> and that's what we're <laughs> going to focus on. Uh, how are you doing today? I mean, how, how's uh, quarantine life been treating you? I know you went outside for the first time in like three months uh, this week. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went out just before quarantine. I had dropped off a suit to be tailored because I was supposed to be in a friend's wedding. And then I think literally a day or two days before I was supposed to go pick it up. New York State shut down. Uh, so everything's been closed, all that stuff. And then yesterday they called me and we're like, hey, just so you know, we have your suit from like March 12th uh, <laughs> whenever you're ready to like come get it. And I was like, oh, OK, so I went today outside for the first time. The mask and the gloves went and picked up my suit. So that's pretty good. It was like that that uh, episode. I think it's the first episode of Better Call Saul when the older brother goes outside to like get the mail and he's got like the <laughs> aluminum blanket and like he's going crazy. That's yes. how I felt, basically. Perfect. Like anyone coming near me terrified. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's my yeah. life. I mean, that's that's kind of how I was, too. I mean, uh, Montana is obviously in a very different space than New York is. Uh, I know New York's kind of going into its like next phase of reopening and stuff like that pretty soon. Montana has been like well in the throes of reopening for a while now. Most things have reopened at this point. Uh, and I'm still pretty cautious about, you know, just being outside and stuff in general. But it feels like less of a le- less of a thing, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, whereas like that first week things were reopening. I was like, well, I'm not going to a restaurant for a month until things calm down. And a month has passed, basically. And I've gone to like <laughs> a restaurant or two since then. And, you know, they typically have like these huge social distancing guidelines in place. They'll do like wipe down all the tables and only a certain capacity and stuff like that. I believe now they've upped it to 75 percent, which seems like too much to me right now. But it is yeah. what it is. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, what, what I am pretty excited about is uh, the Roxy, which is the indie theater near my house in Missoula, Montana. They still haven't reopened yet as a theater, but they're offering up like certain services, like a private movie rental where you could you could like rent out a screen for 200 bucks with, for like up to 12 people, which, you know, between 12 people, it's like 16 bucks a person, which isn't too bad. Yeah. Uh, so you can kind of like rent a screen and show whatever you want. Or they're also doing these like movie nights at the baseball stadium in town, too. Uh, which will play like on the scoreboard or whatever, or on the on like the big jumbotron. Uh, and yeah. so they're showing, per- and so they're showing Purple Rain this week. And I'm going with like a, uh, I-, I paid twenty dollars to be on the field in a socially distanced ten by ten square. <laughs> Hell yes, <laughs> uh, which I'm pretty psyched about. So I'll just be on the blanket watching the Jumbotron. It's going to be a ton of fun. So, uh, yeah, so it's it's nice to get back to something resembling normalcy, even though that's something that would never happen under normal circumstances. <laughs> right. I didn't even uh, think of that. Yeah, but it's at least it's there. And the only reason it's happening is because the baseball team is like, well, I think our season's pretty much shot for the summer. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. So we got to use the stadium for something. So that's uh, what they ended up doing, which is pretty cool. Um, but all right. So all the theme songs you're going to hear this episode were created by Kyle Cullen, who you can reach for your own theme songs at Kyle's podcast themes at gmail.com. Our logo was designed by Jacob Honeycutt or at Jacob Honey on Twitter. And if you ever want to contact us and respond to something we did in the show, you can email us over at Mike and Mike go to the movies at gmail.com. So if you haven't been following along with our quarantine bonus episodes yet this week, we're just doing our normal quarantine bonus discussions. Basically, we're just talking about whatever we've been watching or doing or playing, you know, over the last couple of weeks. And uh, so we're going to do that. I'm going to kind of start things off with my uh, kind of TV recap. Just want to let everyone know I finished season two (laughs) of The Sopranos. Uh, I, I forget wh- I forget which quarantine watch this is. This must be like nine or ten <laughs> at, at least. This point. Yeah, uh, which means it's been about three months and I've watched two seasons of The Sopranos, which for me is pretty fast, guys. <laughs> You're moving. You're moving, man. <laughs> I'm zooming right through The Sopranos. Uh, but yeah, I am uh, really enjoying the show. The last couple episodes of season two are just incredible. Uh, there's some really incredible, like iconic moments that, uh, you know, I, I kind of I knew some of the developments that happened just from like cultural osmosis like just knowing about the sopranos as a pop culture entity but uh the actual implementation of those things was really really effective james gandolfini one of the best actors ever <laughs> just of his generation he's incredible uh and the finale of season two goes into some real twin peaks territory uh which i was wow. all for yeah no the, the show i think the sopranos doesn't get enough credit for being a pretty surreal show at times uh and the season two finale really dives deep into that stuff so uh, i was Pretty happy with that. So, yeah, season two of The Sopranos, which the entire series is on HBO and HBO Go and HBO Max and all that stuff, uh, which I have not gotten HBO Max, uh, but I've heard it's basically just HBO, but it also has the Miyazaki movies. (laughs) From I saw that uh, as an HBO subscriber, like you get it which is cool, but it's what killed Filmstruck, and I resent it for that, so I don't want to ever <laughs> sign up for it. <laughs> uh, which, is, I mean... Uh, yeah, I mean, if you I get mean, it for free, then I, if you get it for free, if you already have HBO, then yeah. I would probably go for it. I, I am currently using my friend's mom's HBO <laughs> HBO account, <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't know what the rules are for HBO Max for me personally. <laughs> yeah, might have to check with that first. Exactly. But uh, in any case, I'm pretty satisfied just having HBO go for now and just have because they have, you know, pretty much every HBO show on there, like the rotating library of HBO movies and stuff. Uh, HBO Max has that stuff, but it also has like stuff from Turner Classic Movies. It has like TCM on there, uh, Mm -hmm. which it doesn't have everything from TCM, but it has like a good selection of stuff. uh, And it also has, you know, old Looney Tunes cartoons and the Studio Ghibli stuff. And so there is cool stuff on there, stuff that I would probably want. Uh, but it also costs a lot of money and I have enough streaming services as it is. So I'm going to hold off on that for a while. Um, there you go. But yeah. So anyway, now that I finished season two of the Sopranos, I decided to take a break before I start watching season three, because once again, I am very slow. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, but hopefully I'll go through this pretty fast. I started watching devs on FX, uh, which is a new miniseries that was written and directed by Alex Garland. He did every single episode of the show. It's entirely created by him. Uh, and this show, uh, premiered a few months back and it just wrapped up a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the entire season er, is on, uh, Hulu right now. It's like part of the FX on Hulu thing. Uh, and so I watched the first three episodes and, uh, it is excellent. The show is really, really cool. Uh, a little bit obtuse, like you don't really know what's happening a lot of the time, but that's kind of par for the course for a lot of Alex Garland stuff. 
uh, like it kind of plays similarly to Annihilation. I think it's more Annihilation than Ex Machina. It's actually kind of interesting okay. because it kind of takes the similar like kind of like tech world aspects of Ex Machina, but approaches them in the way that Annihilation kind of approaches things where Ex Machina feels like a little bit more of a quickly paced movie. Uh, and this is obviously a TV show, so it's kind of like just languishing and taking its time. Uh, but then it gets really intense at certain points. And I think episode two of the three that I watched so far was the best one. You know, the, pi- the pilot takes a little bit of just getting into it because you're like, what exactly is this world that we're going into <laughs> going right. into here? Uh, and it does something really cool where it kind of makes you think that you're going to be following one character for the series. And then it kind of turns it on its head. And suddenly you're actually following a different character for the remainder of the series. Uh, and it's pretty cool and like does that really effectively. Uh, and that's that's actually the point where the show like clicked for me, too. I was like, all right, I'm all in on devs. Uh, so it's only eight episodes. I've watched the first three. Hopefully I'll have watched the entire season pretty soon. I kind of want to just plow right through it so that I can get into season three of The Sopranos. Um, but I am really, really digging it. And it's beautiful looking, too, which is also part of the course for Alex Garland stuff. His stuff always looks really good. Yeah, um, I might have to check that out after after Annihilation. I mean, I love Ex, Ex Machina also. But I was kind of like, this Alex Garland kid's got something going on. I need to check this out, you know? <laughs> this kid, this kid who wrote 28 Days Later and, <laughs> yeah. you know, these movies that came out 20 years ago. This kid's got moxie. <laughs> Let's give him a chance. But yeah, Devs is really, really solid. And uh, I'm definitely looking forward to watching the rest of the show. Also wanted to give a quick shout out to uh, God of War, the uh, video game which came out two years ago uh, that I thought was kind of like when it came out, like for whatever reason, I didn't get it, even though I heard it was amazing. Like I heard, I heard nothing but great things about it. And I was coming off of God of War after playing uh, Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Uh, so I played Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. And I enjoyed it, thought it was a fun platforming game. And then, you know, I put the game away and I was like, all right, I can finally put on God of War, put the game in. And I was like, oh, shit, this is a game. This is how you do it. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's it's just like night and day, like how much better. And I mean, I'm, I'm not just saying that to shit on Fallen Order, because I think it's a pretty fun game. But the God of War is just like next level on, in every category. It's uh, the story is just so well told and the graphically much more interesting. And it just flows a lot better. And uh, I really dig it. And I think the way it reimagines the character Kratos uh, in terms of like where he used to be versus where he is now. So, I mean, you've, you've played a little bit of the new God of War, right? Yeah, I didn't I didn't ever uh, finish it. But I did really, really like it. It's very good. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think what's cool about it is that, you know, I played the, those original three God of War games uh, on the PS2 and PS3, and uh, I really dug them at the time. I really like God of War 2 and 3. God of War 1 is OK, but God of War 2 and 3 are like really, really good. Um, but those are like games that are just about the fuel, like just just nonstop vengeance. Like they're just constantly yeah. like rage and craziness and like, you know, the, the satisfaction of killing the gods that you set out to kill. Right. That's like all those games are about. Uh, and there's like more going on under the surface, I think. But at, at their heart, they are just like beat em up action games uh, that are really, really incredibly well scaled and things like that. And this game takes the character that you knew and turns it into like this melancholy figure uh, who now is, you know, was married and had a wife who recently passed away. And now he has the son he has to care for. Uh, and it reflects on the series past while also like embraces the future, but like, re- like reflects and like, wow, like Kratos regrets everything he ever did in the original three God of War. <laughs> yes yeah Uh, i definitely remember that 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 feeling of like having to deal with like your legacy and especially like literally those games have a troubled legacy of people being like look at how misogynist and violent and awful they are uh and like kratos the character regrets all that (laughs) just fucking wild 
Yeah, I mean, like literally, I remember like God of War, maybe two or three. There's like a mini game where you have to have sex with Aphrodite, and it's like a, yep. it's like a whole thing and all that stuff. That's like I don't remember too much about the God of War games for whatever reason, like the original three. But I remember that. I remember beating the shit out of Zeus at the end of the third one, uh, and yeah. I remember like I think fighting a giant titan. I think it was Kronos. Uh, with this like incredibly awesome boss fight, uh, which uh, like, I think the best thing about these games throughout those three and in, even in this one, too, is just the scale of stuff. Like just seeing how big things can be yeah. <laughs> is really cool. But yeah, I mean, there is a lot of that stuff in those first three games. And this game like reflects on that legacy. And it's actually really interesting to uh, to kind of do it through that. Uh, I, I assumed this would be like kind of a coda to end things on. But now I want to see like more adventures with Kratos and Atreus. Like, I, I think that would be really cool. And and it also like shifts the setting from Greek mythology to Norse mythology. So it has like a whole new playground to mess around in. So uh, and the thing is, the game is also different because it's uh, and I, I only meant to talk about this for like a minute, but I, I did just finish this. <laughs> and I'm, I, all these thoughts are spiraling through my head. Uh, the game does end on like a note of like, well, there's more stuff you can do throughout the game. Like it's an open world game. Um, mm-hmm. as opposed to the original three, which were pretty like straightforward. Like you didn't really have like a lot of stuff to explore, I guess. in those ones, they're like kind of just, you know, go on the path and then you're done. And I want to do that stuff that it, I want to explore. But at the same time, like I finished the story and I'm like, I'm, I'm one of those players who's like, well, once I finish the story, I'm done with the game. <laughs> yeah. But, but there is a lot more stuff to do in the game. So if that's like what you want to check out, then you're definitely can. It's, it's really cool. But all right. So that's uh, that's God of War 2018. And uh, I'll, I, now that I finished it, I'm basically just uh, <laughs> I've been playing a lot of uh, Crash Team Racing, but I've also it came packaged with um, the Crash Insane Trilogy, which is the remastered versions of the original three Crash Crash Bandicoot games from the PlayStation one. Uh, oh, so I've been playing the original Crash Bandicoot and that game is really fucking hard. I don't know if you played that in a long time. <laughs> it's have, really actually. difficult. I think one of my friends might have also had that uh, that that okay. like, bundle or whatever the remaster stuff or I brought a playstation one to college i forget exactly what it is but i've played it in gotcha. the last couple of years yeah i don't think we like made it past like the second level or whatever because that shit, <laughs> those games are fucking hard yeah i mean i've made it i think i've made it a decent way through the game but it's one of those things where like now like each level will take me like an hour to get through yeah uh but it's like really addicting and really fun and the remasters are really incredible because like if you look at like the side by side they basically rebuild the entire game with like genuine new playstation 4 graphics and stuff it looks really Mm. good uh so yeah i've been enjoying the original crash bandicoot but i'm kind of using that to kill time until the last of us part two comes out uh and that'll be my next uh video game excursion uh naughty dog naughty dog man Love me some Naughty Dog. So, yeah, The Last of Us 2. I'm getting back into games is basically my plan. I I feel like I ditched video games for a long time. I think the only games I played over the last few years were like Uncharted 4 and Spider-Man. And and there's so many more games out there from this entire console generation. There's a new PlayStation 5 that was going to be coming out on the horizon. And I missed like most of the games from the PlayStation 4. Uh, so I got to get back into that kind of play some catch up and also get Tony Hawk's Pro Skater remastered when that comes out, because that's going to be dope, obviously, uh, which is actually also from the same. The people remastering Tony Hawk is the same team that remastered uh, Crash Bandicoot. Uh, so I, I, I think it's in pretty good hands. Uh, so there's that, yeah. at least. Um, but all right. So that's God of War and a little bit of Crash Bandicoot. Uh, Mike, what do you got to discuss this today? Oh, boy. Uh, today I have a couple a couple documentaries uh, and I'm going to start with maybe the saddest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> um, OK, maybe I don't <laughs> I don't know if I want to go. Maybe I don't know if I want to put that on it, but it is definitely close. Uh, and that is uh, maybe the infamous. I don't know how you want to describe that. Uh, Dear sure. Zachary. OK, yeah, uh, I, I've never seen Dear Zachary, but I've heard nothing but sad things about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like literally every person I've ever like seen on Twitter or something where somebody's like, you know, what's the saddest movie or what, you know, movie that makes you cry every time, no matter what. 
everyone always says Dear Zachary. Yeah. And uh, I finally got around to seeing it. It's available uh, on Prime. And yeah, yeah, definitely understand why you would cry. And one, I question why anyone would ever ever rewatch this. Uh, like, <laughs> but uh, the plot, quote unquote, or, you know, what the subject of this documentary is uh, this man was killed in, I think, 2002 or something or 2001, maybe. I forget the exact year. And he has a son or has a son is born shortly after his death. Uh, so the filmmaker was one of his best friends growing up. Uh, Andrew Bagby, I think is his name, uh, is the man that died. Uh, so his best friend, uh, was a filmmaker growing up and there's like a really touching montage of like them making movies in their backyard and like all this kind of stuff. Uh, and he decides to travel across the United States, meet all of, uh, Andrew's family, record the memories they have with him, you know, make this documentary about his friends so that when his son grows up, he can watch it and like, you know understand who his father was and the legacy he had you know the effect he had on all of his family members and friends Uh, and the subtitle is um a letter to a son about his father so it's like that's kind of like the thesis for the movie and it kind of unfurls that uh the person that killed andrew bagby was his girlfriend and mother of his son uh in like this kind of crazy you know uh, jealous lover not even jealous lover just like kind of you know stalker situation yeah. uh so then it, it's you know the first like half of the movie is just like about uh andrew and his legacy and you know the effect he had on the people around him and then it kind of becomes about this custody battle for his son between um zachary's grandparents and zachary's mother who's in prison okay in canada she escaped to or is a canadian citizen i think so she's like you know fled, fled to canada and there's like this extradition hearing thing going on as long as this custody battle uh and it kind of develops about that you know in the last half of the movie um but yeah man just like absolutely tragic everything about this movie uh is it is like if you want to be emotionally devastated, which is kind of the headspace I was in when I was like, you know what, fuck it, I want to finally get to watch Dear Zachary. Um, it'll do it. Like absolutely, <laughs> like crying, uh, like just in tears, breaking breaking down over this movie. Uh, so I like you know be warned, I guess, if that's you know something you're afraid of. If you you know right. don't go into this movie, you're like, oh, let's find out what this interesting documentary is. No, this movie will absolutely tear your heart out. Uh, <laughs> But like I gave it five stars on Letterboxd. Like it's 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 a perfect documentary like about what like sets out exactly what it's going to do, you know, and and it does it uh, in this really heartfelt, emotional, powerful way. So, I mean, I I think it's a great movie. Like, you know, uh, it's not entertaining in that way like a documentary can be. But if you want to see a portrait of a life uh, of somebody like can't recommend it high enough. Uh, Great. So that's that's Dear Zachary. All right, Dear Zachary from I think 2010 or something like that. And uh, you yeah, had, 2008 uh, somewhere in there. I yeah, forget exactly. Something like that. Uh, all right. Yeah. I, I, again, I've never seen the movie, but uh, everything I've heard about it pretty much reinforces what you just said. And it's one of those things where like, yeah. yeah, I feel like I should see it at some point. I know it's supposed to be one of the great documentaries of our decade, but like, it sounds like a really tough watch. So one of these days. <laughs> Yeah, I'll get yeah. around to it. Uh, but all right, so that's to your Zachary. You had one more documentary on your uh, on your discussions list, right, Mike? Yes, yeah, I had another one. Um, so, Dear Zachary is on Prime, I think, to rent. I forget off the top of my head. Uh, but this one uh, called Scream Queen or Scream Queen. There's a comma in there. Uh, okay. My Nightmare on Elm Street. In the midst of the 1980s, no one was scarier than Freddy Krueger. I love Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. I was obsessed, loving Freddy Krueger, loving A Nightmare on Elm Street. But part two came along, and it was just a strange movie. For a lot of us, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was our introduction to, like, a lot of gay in that movie. 
kind of a siren song for the queer horror community. Mark Patton's a, uh, I mean, he's a scream queen. I wake up in the middle of the first movie that I'm the lead actor in and realize that there's a gay subtext in it. It wasn't subtext, it was right there. This movie is the gayest thing. And we did Xanadu last month. <laughs> and this is available to uh, watch on Shudder. Like, I think it just hit this weekend or something like that. And uh, this is a documentary about um, the actor Mark Patton, who uh, is the star of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. This, uh, have you seen Fred Nightmare 2? I don't remember. I think we've talked I about it before. I have seen Nightmare 2. I think I was the one who told you to watch it, actually. Yeah. Um, back in the day, because I, I think I think all the Nightmare movies had showed up on Shutter or something at some point for like a month. And I think you watched the first one and I was like, oh, you should watch Nightmare on Elm Street, too, um, because, I mean, we had seen Dream Warriors at like a, a you know, a, right. a horror marathon at some point. Then the third one. Uh, and I watched the second one, I think, a while before that, like it was on Hulu or something like that. Uh, and I was kind of struck by a how good that movie was. It's actually very good. Those Like those original three Nightmare on Elm Street movies are all really good. Um, yeah. But then kind of reading more into it, like even just watching it for the first time, I was like, something seems like different about this movie. <laughs> but like, mm -hmm. you know, just being a dumb straight guy, I didn't really put it together. Basically, like kind of doing some research afterwards, I kind of like discovered that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is considered like a kind of bastion of queer cinema in a, in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, and that there's a lot of like kind of gay subtext throughout the movie and you kind of read into certain things and it's like, Oh yeah. Kind of like it all digs back into that. So that's, it's really interesting to look at through that lens and scream queen is about the actor who was gay in real life, uh, and mm -hmm. her and currently still is obviously right. um, <laughs> still alive. Yep. I <laughs> uh, didn't mean to use that in the past tense, but yeah. And it's just about his life and like how the movie affected him in his life. Right. Is that kind of the idea behind it? Yeah. Yeah. It's just about Mark Patton basically. And, uh, the way this movie basically ended his career, I had no, idea. this movie is it's the documentary is fascinating, like absolutely yeah. uh, engaging about how Mark Patton, uh, was this, you know, a closeted gay man in 1980 nightmare two came out in 1985, but you know, prior to that, uh, living in the Midwest, I think. And he came to New York. It was like, fuck this. I have to get out of here. Came to New York. Uh, like immediately found an acting career was in a stage production of of return to the five come back to the five and dime james dean james dean or something like, uh, i forget the title jimmy, of it but it's jimmy dean jimmy dean that's a robert altman movie from 82 right um, but a yeah. stage production directed by roger robert altman with the same same uh cast they okay. ran on broadway for a couple months uh and then robert altman uh, directed the film adaptation with the, the cast from the play. So like that was his first thing. And like, you know, kind of was on the on the rise in the 80s and then went out for pilot season and was guest starring on a lot of sitcoms and shows and like had this kind of big career. And this was Nightmare 2 was his um, leading, you know, kind of like we've been talking about with Goldblum on Goldblum Pod, where it's like, here we go. He's right. breaking out like this is the thing. Uh, the first leading man kind of role. And uh, at a time when being gay not only was like, you know, you had to be in the closet and stuff, but then the AIDS epidemic broke out. And now right. it was people were absolutely terrified that anybody was gay. And, you know, with Rock Hudson's death of it from AIDS, uh, like that was it kind of like this this like witch hunt, uh, uh, this hysteria around gay people and people having AIDS. Just being near that and the kind of subtext around Nightmare 2 and like, you know, that whole thing basically forced, forced Mark Patton to flee Hollywood. Uh, his his boyfriend died from AIDS uh, and everyone was like, this guy, he's going to have it. We have to, you know, this whole thing. And it, it, it was right. really fascinating, especially why, the way Mark Patton describes uh, the screenwriter David Chaskin, I think is his name, uh, kind of blames him, like puts all the blame on him because David Chaskin for decades denied that there was uh, 
subtext that he did this, that it was like, right. Th- there was no subtext that like the casting was just so gay that the movie became gay kind of thing <laughs> was kind of his take for like since yeah. 1985, basically he's since come around and been like, no, this was here. I wrote this movie to be like that uh, kind of thing. Uh, yeah. But so it was fast. Like they, they talk about in this movie, there was a previous documentary on the Freddy franchise and like the legacy of never sleep again. I think it was called or something like that a couple of years ago. Yeah. And they had you find a, a, they had you hire a private detective to find Mark Patton. Like that's how removed from Hollywood and anything he was working, (laughs) like running a art shop in a small, like Puebla in Mexico. Like I just van it, like disappeared, like (laughs) was living his own life in Mexico, which is fascinating. And that's kind of like all in the, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Basically, exactly like MacGruber, (laughs) you're right. Um, But so that's, that's kind of all the first like half hour of of this movie. And uh, the last hour of it is uh, Mark Patton kind of reclaiming uh, Freddy uh, Nightmare 2 and, and using it to like, there was the 30th anniversary, I think it was in 2015 and like going on tour and giving speeches and kind of using it as a platform for gay rights advocacy uh, and uh, things like that. So it is, it's really fascinating and it ends up being like this very triumphant uh, so it's like a moment at the end where there's like he's got a famous dance in the in the movie uh, I don't know if you remember that with like the pop gun kind of thing and he's like shaking his butt a lot and, and yes yeah. It's, yeah it's like a whole thing and there's this really triumphant montage of uh, Mark Patton at these screenings doing dance, dance competitions like who can do it the best so yeah it's a really interesting emotional pairing with Tears Angry which is the one who's like <laughs> The ultimate rip your heart out move movie uh, documentary. And this one's kind of like a really triumphant, like reclaiming of something that was traumatic. And now uh, Mark Patton is using it as a platform uh, to promote uh, gay rights and human rights. And uh, yeah, it's really cool. So if you're at all interested in that kind of, you know, that look into 1980s queer history and and as it relates to cinema and and Hollywood and stuff like that. So I definitely recommend uh, Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, and that's on Shutter right now. Nice. Yeah, I've, uh, I've heard great things about that. I think it was covered. Uh, was it like a, it's a recent it came out like last year or something like that. This documentary or something. Yeah, something it might have been lines. like on the festival festival circuit or something last okay. year. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah it, came, I, it just came out yeah. streaming this year. I think I saw it covered in like Fangoria or something like months ago. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, that sounds really cool. Um, but all right. So that's Screen Queen. And that's on Shutter right now. Uh, all right. I actually have a horror movie to uh, talk about. A couple of horror movies that are kind of in the mix today. But uh, first, I want to mention one that uh, was released on Netflix about two years ago and it was one of those things where I heard good things and I was like all right I should save this movie in the queue so I can watch it pretty soon and then I saved it in the queue and I didn't watch it pretty soon (laughs) (laughs) I think it kind of sat in the queue for about two years there Um, as as so often happens with uh, Netflix movies like I, I have movies in my Netflix list that have been there since I got Netflix when I was in high school Uh, (laughs) and stuff like a lot of the times if you don't remove a movie from the list like and if the movie leaves Netflix if it comes back to Netflix it'll stay in your list Uh, (laughs) so (laughs) they put it back yeah and so there's movies that are from you know 10 years ago that I had like a mild interest in back then (laughs) and I was like oh I'm gonna put this in the list and I go through the list now and I'm like I'm never gonna watch this (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'll you know, never remove it just in case. Exactly. Like, what if I do want to watch it at some point? And it's a good <laughs> thing I didn't. And it's a good thing I didn't remove this movie, Mike. I'm talking about The Ritual from 2018, which uh, was a horror movie and uh, it currently still is. And 
Uh, I'm all about that past tense today. Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> uh, the Ritual is a movie uh, directed by David Bruckner, who uh, did a couple of the segments in the VHS movies. Uh, I think that's kind of what his kind of claim to fame was before The Ritual. This kind of came out back in 2018. I think I played it played at a couple of festivals of the year before that. And uh, I just heard solid stuff about it. And I just put it in the queue and I kind of randomly selected it. Like uh, every once in a while, I'll close my eyes on my Netflix queue and just kind of like... <laughs> Just press down on the remote and see what comes up. And the ritual is what came up. Uh, And I'm glad it did. This is a really solid horror movie about a group of guys uh, who are all getting together, like old college buddies who are hanging out in the bar and they're trying to plan like a summer trip together. Uh, And then one of them dies in like a a horrifying way. And so the the rest of them decide, okay, you know what? We're so distraught about this. We're going to go spread his ashes in the place that he wanted to go for for our summer trip. We'll make that our trip and we'll go spread his ashes over there. Uh, And that was hiking in the Swiss mountains. And so that's what they do. They go hiking in the Swiss mountains and they're there. And, you know, I like the camaraderie between the guys. The main guy is played by Rafe Spall, by the way, uh, who is in a lot of the Edgar Wright movies. He plays one of the Andes and Hot Fuzz. Uh, it's kind of right. like the man. Okay. <laughs> you know, I think he's the one who kind of pops in back out of frame, but uh, I, I mix the two Andes up sometimes. The, the, you know, the <laughs> iconic scene from Hot Fuzz where the guy is like yep. two leave out of frame and then the one just kind of comes back in real quick. It's great. Hot Fuzz, perfect movie. But uh, so Rafe Spall is kind of the main guy and the camaraderie between all the friends is like, they, they have really, like the dynamics between them are all really solid, uh, but they're all in the woods and of course they get lost and <laughs> they, uh, you know, end up, you know, staying at this cabin they find in the middle of the woods and they look up in the attic and there's like some weird witchcraft stuff that's happening up there. And then uh, when they leave the cabin the next morning, uh, they realize that they are being hunted. There's a giant monster out in the woods that is hunting them, essentially. Uh, and Whoa. I think it's really, really solid stuff. It very, it feels very much like a Blair Witch Project type movie. Uh, you know, there's a group of people stuck in the woods and stuff like that. But it's not found footage. Uh, and it's filmed really, really well. It looks great. I think this movie, it, and it feels more paced like a movie like The Witch, like a more of an art house horror movie. Uh, but the mm-hmm. monster itself is awesome. They don't show it pretty much at all for the first, like, three quarters of the movie. And then when it finally reveals itself, it just looks really cool and the design is awesome. Uh, I think the last like third of the movie, it, it, it kind of like adds some stuff that it doesn't need to. Like if it was just like a pure monster movie in the woods, I think it would have been better off. Uh, but as it is very solid horror movie, uh, like a three and a half out of five, I would say, uh, if we're going to put like a number okay. rating to it. Uh, and it's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. Uh, so theoretically, it will be there forever until Netflix runs out of space. Uh, so <laughs> I always worry about that. Like one day Netflix is like, all right, we have like one terabyte of space. And oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't it be great if Netflix only had like a terabyte of space for everything they have? Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, no, that'd be sh- terrible. That would be very terrible. They, it's like, <laughs> all right, we got to decide whether to put on uh, the new season of 13 Reasons Why or get rid of the Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> Delete it from history forever. <laughs> That's fine. But the ritual, very solid stuff. I think you would dig it, especially. Uh, so it's on Netflix right now. Worth checking out. And then wanted to give a shout out to another horror movie uh, that I watched uh, this past week, which is a horror comedy from 1988, which I loved. Uh, it's a Frank Henenlotter movie. Frank Henenlotter the director of Frankenhooker, uh, which we saw at a, a movie marathon back in the day, uh, which the is world very renowned. Fun. Yeah, the world renowned Frankenhooker. I believe the uh, the pull quote on the poster is from Bill Murray, which uh, it says, uh, <laughs> if you if you only see one movie in your lifetime, you should probably make it Frankenhooker. <laughs> yep. <laughs> which is always really great. Uh, that was two years after this movie, Brain Damage, which came out in 1988. This is the start of your new life, Ryan. A life without worry or pain or loneliness. A life filled instead with colors and music and euphoria. 
a life of light and pleasure. But who are you? What are you? I am you, Brian. I'm all you'll ever need. I don't understand. You will, Brian. From now on, your life will take on a whole new light. And all you have to do is look into the light and listen. Listen to the light, Brian. Just listen to the light. Yes, yes, I'd like to again, but... I don't see it now. Then I'll make you a deal. I'll show you the light if you'll take me for a walk. A walk? Where? Anywhere you like. I'm, uh, hungry. Wait, wait, I'm confused. I'm not following any of this. Then don't worry about it. You don't need to worry about anything ever again. I'll do all your thinking for you. Just put me on the back of your neck and everything will be fine. My neck? Oh, you mean the hole? I... Wait, but I don't know. Trust me, Brian. Trust me. And uh, this movie is so much fun, Mike. I uh, had a blast. Uh, this is one that I bought uh, on an Arrow video sale. Arrow video had like a sale a while back and I kind of bought, did a couple of blind buys. Brain Damage was one of them and it paid off spectacularly. <laughs> this nice. is a movie that I feel like I'll be watching a lot in the years to come. But basically the plot of Brain Damage is that you're following this kid, just like kind of an average guy, lives with his brother in an apartment in New York City. And uh, one day this brain slug shows up uh, and and basically takes over his mind. Uh, so the, okay. the the way the brain slug works is it like kind of plugs into his neck and releases these like endorphins that give you this amazing high, like uh, like out of this world kind of thing. And while you're doing that, you have like no conception of what's going on around you and who you are and what you're doing. Uh, and so while you're doing that, naturally, like you're killing people and eating their brains. I mean, that's <laughs> that's the idea. Uh, the brain slug talks. It has eyes. Uh, and it has a mouth and the voice that comes out of the brain slug is not the kind of voice you would associate with a brain slug. Like if <laughs> it's a more sophisticated hmm. voice, I think that you would expect. Like, I think when the brain slug showed up, like, I was like, OK, this is the best because I had no idea what this movie is about going into it. Uh, Amazing. <laughs> uh, and then the brain slug showed up. I was like, all right, I'm in. And then the brain slug opened its mouth and like opened its eyes and started talking. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> this is the best. Uh, and it's just it's very funny. And this the some great gore effects here. And this movie was made for a very, very low budget, like something like, you know, a couple thousand dollars or whatever, like nothing like less than a million bucks, you know, and uh, mm. Frank Kennelotter like really like just gets everything you can out of that. Like, uh, you know, it's just a lot of fun watching him work and do like the kind of effects this movie does while having like, this weird sense of humor. Uh, so yeah, brain damage from 1988. Uh, definitely recommend it. It would especially play well, like Frankenhooker at one of those like horror movie marathons. It would be a ton of fun, like in that kind of environment. Yeah. I've never seen this one and I haven't seen, uh, the first movie quote unquote, uh, basket case, which is another similar thing, which I remember hearing about, uh, because, uh, on shutter Joe Bob Briggs, uh, last drive in, they did, uh, brain damage. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I think. And there's like a crossover thing where like the guy from Basket Case is on the subway in in, in Brain Damage. So they were like, oh, okay. oh the, the Hen and Lauderverse kind of thing. Like, there, I don't know, it was a whole thing. Gotcha. Um, so that's pretty fun. Uh, there's nice. a, you know, look at that. Dri Drive-in movie crossover events. Love it. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but yeah, that's Brain Damage and uh, definitely worth checking out. So I guess it's on Shudder if it was on uh, Joe Bob Briggs recently. Uh, yes. So it's definitely worth uh, checking that out. Otherwise, it's available on uh, Arrow Video Blu-ray. 
Um, but all right, so that's uh, that's my horror movie kind of section for the day. Mike, what else you got? I got uh, two horror movies coming at you. All uh, right. Because you know me. <laughs> you know me. I got first up uh, from 1980, Deadline. Yeah, this is a uh, Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray. Uh, and the plot of this movie is there's this author, a horror or screenwriter, or a horror, I guess screenwriter, because that, that happens a bunch. There's like him on movie sets. Uh, but basically, he's, you know, kind of struggling to crack this story kind of thing and and um he's it's sort of him kind of losing his mind where he starts like you know while he's trying to think of horrific things that can happen he starts like having visions of them happening uh, you know for stuff to write for his stories it kind of becomes about this like descent into madness as he you know becomes oblivious to his marriage falling apart and his kids like hating him and all this stuff as he just keeps like having these visions of horrific disgusting murders and deaths and stuff like that and really this movie like kind of sucks except for uh all those moments of the violence that he's imagining and and trying to write plots of uh because those gore effects like and it's like bright crimson red like monty python level spray like it's insane like the gore effects that he's trying to come up with to have you know these horrific scenes in his horror stories but it's it's also like intercut with like him at breakfast with his kids and then like smash cut to like people being burned alive for witch hunts and then like smash cut back to him and like oh how are the eggs you know like that kind of thing <laughs> um so like the plot's not really that engaging or in any way but like the kind of visuals and just seeing you know the absolutely grotesque disgusting gore and stuff like that is a lot of yeah. fun uh in that in that regard um and the guy i couldn't help but i, I tried to find a picture when i tweeted about this that i was watching it but he looks exactly like john mulaney in a wig and um, it's very <laughs> fucking funny because um, he's also like kind of playing the like dad. Like he's literally a dad. But like I was just picturing it like John Mulaney talking about his father. Um, yes. But like it's, it's this guy instead. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was a fun little little you know way to experience this movie, uh, which, you know, it's it's fine. Like the movie's OK, but the gore effects are really, really good. Uh, and those moments are very shocking and like kind of like I said, out of fucking nowhere. Or like, you know, he's having a talk with his agent and then like. Blah, or some guys getting thrown into a wood chipper, you know, and like wild <laughs> shit like that. Um, so that's fun. And then the the last like twenty minutes are actually really good, uh, where he's kind of you know being being egged on the whole time by this like movie producer character that's like you know the people love this stuff we need more and that's why he's getting like more crazy and more grotesque and more horrible stuff yeah uh, and his marriage is dissolved and one of his children is dead and like all this crazy shit's going on uh and he's just like drunk and he's doing blow and he like finds a bunch of sex <laughs> workers and he's like let's go to my mansion let's all go like this is when i was like this is john mulaney because <laughs> he's yeah. like ah my, my mansion he's like doing this whole thing uh and he's just having this big party you know well, it's like party with him and like you know six prostitutes and stuff like that and they're yeah. all doing coke and he puts on one of his movies that like made the money for the house and it's like you know obviously this grotesque horror movie and shit gets really weird and the, all the people all the women are like what the fuck are you doing like why is you showing us this and the, it turns into like this big like trippy completely off the deep end on coke and drugs and like all this stuff and it becomes this big they smash his house up because they're mad at him and it, it's like the last 20 minutes devolve into chaos which is a lot of fun but otherwise like yeah okay you know this might be fun like, like a group of friends like drinking watching this just to be shocked when the gore stuff happens but otherwise yeah. i wouldn't really uh wouldn't really recommend like go out and buy this blu-ray but it's fun you know for the, the vinegar syndrome completionist in me i'm glad i own it you know 
Fair enough. So that was a yeah. deadline. And then you had one more horror writing movie in your in your docket, right, Mike? Yes. Yeah, I, I watched this and then I immediately remembered you talked uh, last week about In the Mouth of Madness, directed yes, by uh, John Carpenter, which uh, is about a horror writer gone missing and the chaos that ensues uh, right after that. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to watch that movie. I haven't seen that yet. <laughs> so I go. watched uh I did a double feature on uh, horror writers gone wrong, basically. Uh, <laughs> and goddamn, dude, In the Mouth of Madness is absolutely fucking incredible. Ten, right. Five minutes in, I think I texted you. I was like, this is the like, this is the best movie of all time. <laughs> like, like, what is going on? Yes. How have I never seen this movie before? And I want to own it 25 times. I need this movie. I need to go buy this movie on Blu-ray. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's so good. And, and like even right down to the very beginning, just using like that weird... I don't know, like fish eye. It's not fish eye, but like that kind of distorted thing within the mental institution where they bring Sam Neill. Right. Uh, just it's so so disorienting and gross. And then he's got all the the, the crayon. And he's drawn all the crosses all over his cell, and that's like literally five minutes in. And then he starts telling the story about what happened. And Charlton Heston's in it. You buried that yes. lead. That was so oh, exciting. Man. Yeah. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> Charlton Heston and uh, young Hayden Christensen popping up in this movie too, as the uh, oh as my the paper God. Boy. on the bike. Yeah, on the, on the oh. bike. Yeah, he's the paperboy kid. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit! Yeah, it is. Wow, that's yeah. so much fun. Yeah, this movie is great. What a what a little. You know, it's funny. I, I had heard about this, and when you were talking about it last week, I was gonna say, like, "Oh yeah, it's a Lovecraft adaptation, right?" And it's very Lovecraftian. But yes. the, I think the movie, or there is a title called "At the Mountains of Madness" from yes. Lovecraft. Yeah, which I thought this was, but it's not. Uh, I forget. I think there's. I mean, this movie is kind of everything. Uh, you know, very Lovecraftian about like yeah, these people are being mutated, and then they're in literally the pages of the story rip at one point. Like wild, absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, yeah, it's, it's yeah. heavily Lovecraft, heavily Stephen King, and of course, like heavily John Carpenter uh, in there too. Yeah. Uh, it's great, and I think it is like you know, I think because John Carpenter has so many like classics to his name. Uh, with, you know, Halloween and The Thing and Big Trouble in Little China and Assault of Precinct 13 and all these big movies. Uh, I don't know why Big Trouble in Little China is like generally considered a big movie, but it's 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 great. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, but I feel like those movies kind of overshadow, you know, this movie a little like there's like stuff that like kind of slipped yeah. through the cracks because like, you know, there's just like how can I possibly live up to like the legacy of Halloween or whatever. But like this movie fucking rocks. It's so much fun. <laughs> yeah. I think what you talked about too last time, uh, like the it's like 1994 or five or whatever it was, the era of Carpenter that is where it's kind of like the tail end of him as yeah. like this big powerhouse director that I think yeah. this kind of gets ignored and it's Pretty easily much. up there up there in my you know top two or three <laughs> uh, top yeah, five same. at least carpenter uh <laughs> yeah. incredible yeah i think it's one of his best i think it was like right after he did um the invisible man movie with uh with chevy chase i think uh see uh he did like an invisible i forget the name of it exactly but it's like an invisible man movie with chevy chase in like 92 he did and that's uh, more of a comedy mm-hmm. and like that's not it wasn't like well received and so he kind of did this and then he did escape from la and so because the Chevy Chase movie wasn't well received and Escape from L.A. wasn't well received at the time, although it's kind of gained a cult since then. I feel like In the Mouth of Madness also kind of just gets buried because it was in between these two movies that people didn't really like at the time, uh, yeah. which is a bummer. But In the Mouth of Madness fucking rocks. Uh, it's available on Scream Factory Blu-ray, which is what I have uh, for the movie. And mm-hmm. uh, you should definitely get that next time there's a sale, uh, which they, they have like would. they have like specific John Carpenter sales every once in a while, too. So you should be able to uh, <laughs> jump I, on that. Yeah. I remember listening to them, uh, the the guys that run that uh, were on Shockwaves, and they think, I think you said 
They have almost every John Carpenter uh, movie. There's like a couple that they can't get the rights because of some weird studio thing. Yeah. Uh, but their goal is to get everyone available to have every John Carpenter movie, which is incredible. They, yeah. And it is available to rent on uh, Prime for anyone that is interested. Okay. So. Great. Yes, that's uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Awesome movie, which we covered again last week and now again this week. Uh, and that's the end of your movies, right, Mike? Yes, that's everything. Okay, cool. I have I have two more to uh, throw in there. Two, uh, one of them I think is probably like an all time classic. Probably like generally considered that way, or at least like pretty well entrenched in pop culture. The other one, I'm not sure if it's considered an all time classic, but as far as like '90s action movies go, it's pretty fucking great. Uh, so first. <laughs> First, I'll mention the one that uh, is pretty entrenched in the pop culture, which is 1983's Risky Business. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the fuck. What the fuck gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. Kyle, you're right there. So your folks are going out of town. Tomorrow. You got the place all to yourself? Yeah. What the fuck? Uh, directed by Paul Brickman, starring Tom Cruise in his breakout role. I had never seen Risky Business before, uh, which is wow. crazy. It's crazy because I love, you know, 80s coming of age movies. I've seen like a lot of the big ones, but pretty much most of the big ones. And I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan. I like watching, you know, Tom Cruise, especially in action movies. And, you know, it's 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 kind of surreal watching Tom Cruise in like, you know, like young Tom Cruise in movies now, I feel like just because I know I associate Tom Cruise with like that hyper competent, like Ethan Hunt or whoever, like he like the kind of character he plays in almost all of his action movies, <laughs> you yeah. know, like the same kind of action hero he's been playing since Top Gun onward. And mm-hmm. so watching him in like risky business where he's just like kind of this like unsure of himself self kid it's like oh my god what happened to this tom cruise this is wild uh, um, but yeah. uh, but he's great in the movie and you know the thing about risky business pretty much all i knew about risky business was that was that a tom cruise was in it and b that at one point he dances to old-time rock and roll uh in his underwear <laughs> and that's yeah <laughs> because that's, that's basically the, iconic, the movie that's the iconic scene from the movie that happens like 10 minutes in um but yeah. essentially essentially the plot of the movie is that tom cruise's parents are off on this big trip to europe or whatever he's got the house to himself for a couple of weeks uh and so his friend kind of hooks him up with this service like this prostitution service to call a woman over so he can lose his virginity which he does the woman played by rebecca de mornay uh, who is excellent in the movie. I think she's actually like, you know, the, like she's the second lead in the movie is Tom Cruise and her Rebecca de Mornay. And if you watched just this movie without the context of like where their careers would go after that, if I had to pick one of them who would be go on to be a big star, I feel like it would be Rebecca de Mornay. I think she's incredible in this movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and she had a career after this. She was in other stuff. But like, you know, obviously Tom Cruise became Tom Cruise. <laughs> um, right. Uh, it's a little bit different, but uh, so they, you know, end up having sex and they sort of form like a kind of a relationship. But then Tom Cruise kind of gets roped into this prostitution ring where he's like using his house to rent, like allow the prostitutes to be at his house and like, you know, just have sex with his high school friends so he can make money to repair his dad's car, which he busted the other day uh, and that kind of thing. And that's the plot of the movie, which is like, uh, like, that's why it's called risky business because he's running. <laughs> 
a risky yeah. business. Um, but yeah, but I think I think it's very solid. I think it's you know it's a, a very effective coming of age kind of comedy drama. I think the comedy moments really work. But Tom Cruise, Rebecca De Mornay, like it really works as just you know a drama of their lives and like what's going to be happening with this kid who really has no idea what he's going to be doing in the future. Joe Pantoliano is in it uh, as the <laughs> as the pimp, uh, and he's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I always love seeing Joey Pants. Uh, so yeah, risky business. It's uh, mm. worth checking out if you haven't watched it. Uh, it's on Hulu right now. There you go. I haven't seen that in a very long time. Uh, maybe I'll go back and revisit it. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty good stuff. But yeah, so that's risky business. And then the other movie I wanted to mention uh, is one that I watched this week. Uh, and it's a very weird movie to watch specifically this past week in terms of just everything going on in the world right now. Uh, and the reason I watched it is because this movie was actually reviewed on the Slash Filmcast a few weeks back. Uh, and it kind of like made the rounds when all the coronavirus stuff started happening. Um, because of a gif in the movie where that takes place in the future. I'm talking about uh, Demolition Man, by the way, from 1993. <laughs> um, nice. And uh, the reason like it, they talked about it in the Slash Filmcast uh, is because, A, they've kind of been in the same position as us where there's no new movies coming out. So they got to just kind of figure out what to talk about. And so they've been just electing to talk about old movies they like. And I haven't gotten to that episode of Slash Filmcast yet because I'm perpetually three months behind on, <laughs> on my <laughs> podcast. But... The reason this movie kind of made the rounds a few months ago is because there's a gif in the movie. Uh, and this is what they do kind of throughout the movie. Basically, in this kind of future pacifist society that they've built, um, instead of a handshake, they all do like a weird, like kind of no touching hands symbol thing where they kind of like put right. their hands really close to each other, do a spinny thing, and then they kind of pull away without actually touching. Uh, and so when the coronavirus stuff started happening, like the gif of like Rob Schneider and the other guy doing it uh, kind mm. of kind of made the rounds. And uh, it was like, OK, this is how we should be greeting each other from now on, basically, <laughs> with all the coronavirus stuff happening. But if you have not seen Demolition Man, I'm, I guess you have, right, Mike? Yeah, it's actually on HBO randomly like a couple months ago, I want to say. So within oh, yeah. the last, you know, maybe since January or something. Uh, I, I saw it again, but I had seen it before. OK, gotcha. I had never seen Demolition Man before, uh, which what? seems insane because this is exactly the kind of movie I would have been all over, uh, especially when I was in like high school yeah. and stuff. But this movie uh, stars Sylvester Stallone as a loose cannon cop on the edge, which is not an archetype I really want to watch in movies right at this moment. Uh, nope. but, but Sylvester Stallone plays a cop in like 1996 Los Angeles. The movie came out in 93, so it's taking place in like a couple years in the future. And like Los Angeles is this huge, crime-ridden city and Sylvester Stallone is like this cop who's like just kind of going nuts and trying to you know take down this one criminal played by Wesley Snipes who has taken these like 30 people hostage in a building and I think what's interesting about this movie is it actually it doesn't play down the police brutality aspects of Sylvester Stallone's character um, and it actually kind of reckons with it in some certain ways uh, like the like basically the plot of this and also weirdly this movie has the same plot as Austin Powers uh, is that <laughs> Oh, my God. Is that Sylvester Stallone and Wesley Snipes, they basically they they both get frozen for 40 years and wake up in the future uh, of 2032. And, and and they basically have to go hunt each other again. Sylvester Stallone has to go hunt down Wesley Snipes, much like uh, Austin Powers has to hunt down Dr. Evil. It's very it's very strange. Yeah. Holy uh, shit. <laughs> but uh, but basically in that opening scene, you know, he gets to this warehouse where Wesley Snipes is at and he's and Stallone is like, where's the hostages? And he's trying to figure out where the hostages are. And Stallone, being the loose cannon cop on the edge, is just causing destruction left and right and basically blows up the building because he doesn't think the hostages are there. But the hostages are in the building and he is responsible for the deaths of 30 people. Uh, and so Wesley Snipes gets put in jail 
but also Stallone does too. Uh, and they kind of like reckon with that a little bit. Like there's a little bit of that mm-hmm. kind of like aspect of it. So it's really interesting to watch, especially as things are happening right now in terms of the protests against police brutality and stuff like that. Uh, and then there's other stuff in the movie where it's just like, it does kind of feel like it's endorsing that, <laughs> that aspect of Stallone's character. So there's a lot of like back and forth in terms of what it's doing. But, you know, I think that's arguably just because it is a big blockbuster 90s action movie. And that's kind of what they did back in the day and kind of still do in a lot of movies. But so Stallone and Snipes get put in this like experimental procedure to basically freeze the criminals and do this like rehab thing where they like have these like mind stuff put in their brains, you know, make their brains more accessible for like, so when they wake up, they're rehabilitated and they won't have any desire to commit any crimes anymore or whatever. It's kind of the idea behind the movie. Uh, And so they wake up 40 years later, which is like 40 years before they're supposed to wake up and it's 2032 and they're in this entirely different future, which is entirely pacifist. Uh, And there's one really ironic line that Rob Schneider says, when Wesley Snipes breaks out and starts killing people, uh, Rob Schneider has a line where it's like, we're the police. We're not prepared for this kind of violence. Um, and it's just like, oh, boy, it's weird. It's weird to watch. Yeah. But, you know, if you remove yourself from the context of that, it's a great action movie. I mean, it's <laughs> it, really uh, is, it really is. I mean, Stallone is, you know, so much fun to watch. Wesley Snipes is a great over the top villain. Uh, Sandra Bullock in one of her first leading roles uh, is kind of like the uh, Stallone's partner who's, you know, from 2032. And she's like obsessed with the old days of how things were done and that kind of thing. But at the same time, everyone else always refers to Stallone as like, he's a barbarian, he's a fascist and that kind of thing. Like they all, they keep like referring to him as that. Uh, So again, it's just like a really interesting dynamic where the movie like wants to have its cake and eat it too. Again, the movie's like a great action movie. Dennis Leary is like kind of the underground resistance leader of the, of 2032. It like kind of delves into like the, the fallibilities of the future pacifist world too, because it's also sort of, fascist and it like, you can't even curse or like you'll get charged like a morality clause or that, <laughs> that kind of thing yeah. which makes for a lot of very funny jokes uh the sequence when i think it must be i don't remember exactly like right after uh snipes wakes up kind of deal and uh he goes into the museum of violence and yeah. uh like to get guns because guns don't exist in the world except yeah. for this museum and he's just like got gatling guns and i think a cannon at one point i remember yeah. and it's just like all out insanity yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. But Demolition Man, it's a uh, like remove your maybe don't watch it right now <laughs> like I did. Yeah. But remove yourself from the context of the times and like maybe watch it like a year or two from now, hopefully when we've disbanded the police uh, and look back right. on it as a, a relic of 90s action movies. And it should still hold up. It's it's a really fun movie. It's also like really well directed and well shot. Uh, the director, uh, Marco Brambilla, had never directed a movie before and has only directed like one feature length movie since. Uh, he's like an experimental Canadian short film director uh, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> who like kind of got his shot at a Hollywood action movie for some reason with this movie. Uh, and you can kind of tell when you watch this kind of uh, watch it. It's pretty fun to just see like the way he visualizes the future and that kind of thing. And uh, these kind of weird sequences. Uh, and I, I also did want to mention there's a, there's a weird thread the movie drops about halfway through um, where Stallone keeps asking about his daughter. He's asking like the first thing he asks about when he wakes up from the ice is like, what happened to my wife? And they explained to him that she died in an earthquake. Um, and then he's like, what happened to my daughter? And they're, and they're like, we didn't look her up, but we can find out for you. And he's like, no, I don't want her to see me and that kind of thing and all that stuff. And that gets dropped about halfway through the movie. And I'm positive. I haven't looked that deep into it. I'm positive that at some point in an early draft of the script, Sandra Bullock was supposed to be revealed to be Sylvester Stallone's daughter. <laughs> Before or after the sex scenes? <laughs> well, that's the thing. 
I I don't think they were going for like an old boy thing. I think they were trying. <laughs> I think they were, you know, kind of use that as like the twist where it's like, oh, man, Sandra Bullock is his daughter. Uh, and then at, at a certain point, I'm guessing some studio head was like, you know, we need to have some kind of relationship in the movie. We've got to give him a love interest or whatever. So Sandra Bullock became yeah the love interest. So they kind of dropped the daughter thread about halfway through. But like at the end of the movie, I was realizing they hadn't really brought up the daughter again. And I was like, oh man, they're going to reveal that Sandra Bullock is his daughter. It all makes sense. And then he meets up with Sandra Bullock and they kiss. And I was like, hmm, maybe they're not going to do that. (laughs) (laughs) But there is a really, like a really weird sequence where um, they have like a sort of sex scene uh, where it's like, but it's future sex, so it's all virtual. They have like a helmet on and stuff, and like just yeah. like the visualization of that, uh, where it's just kind of cutting between these like kind of silhouettes of naked bodies and things like that, uh, is is really just like it feels very visually different than a lot of other action movies and blockbusters of that era. So uh, yeah, Demolition mm-hmm. Man, man, it's a, it's a cool movie. All right, so that's uh, I think that about wraps it up for this week, right, Mike? Yeah, that's all the things we watched a lot of stuff this week. We did watch a lot of stuff, an exhausting amount of things. <laughs> that came yes. through this week. Uh, but hopefully next week, things will be a little lighter. I think with next week, what we're going to do is we're finally going to be able to do a full episode of Phil, of uh, Mike and Mike go to the movies once again, which is very that's exciting. The theory. Yeah, that's the theory. So this weekend, uh, a couple of big movies actually get released on streaming uh, this week. Uh, there's a new movie called Shirley, which is released on Hulu with Elizabeth Moss, uh, which is supposed to be really great. Uh, a new movie called The Vast of Night just released on uh, Amazon Prime, which I've also heard very good things about. Uh, the new Olivier Assayas movies coming on Netflix. Artemis Fowl's getting released on Disney+. Judd Apatow's new movies being released on Video On Demand uh, with Pete Davidson. Uh, but I think the one mm-hmm. we're going to focus on next week is the new Spike Lee joint, uh, which I am very excited about. Uh, it's going to be on Netflix and it's called The Five Bloods. And I've been hearing good things about this movie for a while. And I'm very excited to see what Spike Lee has done after winning an Oscar for Black Klansman. And especially just during the times we're living in right now, I feel like just watching a new Spike Lee movie will feel very good. Uh, so yeah. uh, very excited about that. So The uh, Five Bloods, I think, is going to be our episode next week. And then we'll do like our normal thing where we'll do discussions first, then a film review, and then maybe do like a you may also like afterwards. It's going to be nice to just be able to do an actual full episode of the show again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to have some homework again, you know? <laughs> oh, Not right, in a bad way. Yeah. I just mean like we've always just been, you know, for the last 10 weeks, it's been like, I don't know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> now we got a plan. We right, got a exactly. plan now. Yeah, exactly. We're planning it out and, you know, we'll see how it goes. From there, I mean, there are other movies that are kind of being released on video on demand and stuff throughout the summer. So we'll see what happens. But I think it's probably going to be mostly bonus episodes still for the foreseeable future. But when we can squeeze in like a full episode, like with the five bloods thing that we're going to do next week, uh, we'll try to do that. But all right. So I think that about wraps things up for this week. So, Mike, where can we find you online uh, this week? You can find me at MD Film Blog on Twitter and Letterboxd. And you can find me online at uh, M Smith Film Blog, uh, Twitter, uh, Mike Smith Film on Letterboxd, and Radio Mike Sandwich on Instagram. I forgot my Twitter handle for a second. That's why I hesitated. <laughs> I, I started laughing because every week you're like, I'm going to streamline those. And here, here you forgot. <laughs> and not only, so did I, not only did I forget one of them, I forgot the one that I've had for about 
nine years. Uh, <laughs> the simplest one. <laughs> the simplest one, yeah. Uh, all right. Thank you for listening to Mike's Might Go to the Movies. I'm Mike Smith. That's my Decretio. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app. And if you want to contact us, hit us up at Mike Might Go to the Movies at gmail.com. And you can find the rest of our podcast on Rapture Press alongside the Review Zoo, a podcast about all kinds of geek news and stuff. Uh, for our next episode, like we said, we're doing to Five Bloods. And in the meantime, our Jeff Goldblum podcast is weekly. We just released our episode on Threshold. And on the next one, we'll be talking Jeff Goldblum's role in the 1982 TV whodunit rehearsal for murder, uh, which I love saying the title to that movie. It's just a lot of fun. So (laughs) I'm pretty excited about that. And that's the end of this week's episode of Mike and Mike Go to the Movies. We'll see you on the other side. Either delete friends or yep. Put in <laughs> another. I got nothing. I ran out. Okay, I ran out of steam enough. on that one. I'm uh, sorry. Yeah, fair enough. It was even. It was. It was a pretty outdated joke because Friends has been off Netflix for a while now. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that was the joke. Okay, fair enough. I guess we're just all. We're not on the same page at all regarding this stuff. at all about anything. But that's fine. That's fine.